and we are commenting the fundamental text of Indian spirituality in which a lot, a lot of yoga elements are present. I'm talking about the Bhagavad Gita, greatly respected by most of the yogis of India. And in Bhagavad Gita, we are presently commenting on chapter number 5, which is called the Yoga of Renouncing the Fruits of Action, which is precisely the very definition of Karma Yoga. And in this chapter 5, we are going, we are moving from the shloka number 21 further to the shloka number 22. In the last two shlokas, 20 and 21, Krishna presents to Arjuna, he synthetically, he in a brief way, basically speaks about the condition of spiritual happiness. In number 20 he was saying, resting in Brahman with steady intellect, undeluded, the knower of Brahman neither rejoices on obtaining what is present, nor grieves on obtaining what is unpleasant. So, describing this state of equanimity about which we spoke about, and in the shloka number, in the strophe number 21, in the verse at number 21, he says, with a self unattached to the external contacts, and he means the contacts of the senses, the state of pratyahara, he discovers happiness in the self, which is actually the only happiness possible, because the senses cannot produce happiness, they can produce only a temporary state of pleasure. And with the self engaged in the meditation of Brahman, he attains to the endless happiness. While the term Brahman used here is a purely Vedantic term, nevertheless the message is clear, to attain the endless happiness, one cuts off the contacts of the senses, performing pratyahara, and one meditates on Brahman, which means meditating on the infinite, meditating on the absolute, if you prefer meditating on God or on the divine consciousness. And thus we reach to the first shloka of today, where Krishna continues, we are in the middle of a beautiful presentation, and Krishna generates a um, model, which this time, of course, while it is philosophically true, it is expressed in a non-tantric but Vedantic way. The verse at number 22 says, The enjoyments that are born of contacts, and he means the contact of the sense organs. This is a theory it's a way of expressing things in Indian spiritual psychology that the sense organs, they make contact with their target. Like when you see something, even a beautiful color or form, it's like your eyes are going out to it. It's exactly like you'd be a snail and you would stretch out your eyes to see. So there is a contact, exactly as the skin and the sense of touch needs an actual contact. You need a contact to smell, you need a contact to taste, you need a contact to see, although that's less obvious, and you need a contact to hear. And that's why the sense organs are 
sort of creating a bridge. They are making a contact with their object, with the objects of the senses. That's why this terminology is used. And here they don't even bother to use the full expression. It says the enjoyments that are born of contacts. It means the enjoyment which are born from the five senses making contact with things, seeing things, hearing things, feeling things, and all that. The enjoyments that are born of contacts, states Krishna, are generators of pain only, for they have a beginning and an end, O Arjuna. The wise do not rejoice in them. This is a point of view which is very radical. The tantric tradition has chosen to sort to solve this problem in a different way, in a strictly philosophical way. Krishna is right, although his judgment is black and white totally. His statement is right. He says the enjoyments which are born of the contact, which means any pleasure which is generated by the five senses, either that you hear something beautiful, that beautiful thing can be somebody praising you, somebody telling you something beautiful, or you listen to a beautiful music, that you feel something pleasant through the sense of touch, that you see something pleasant, such as a beautiful sunset or the face of somebody that you love, or something which pleases you enormously in a visual way, or that you taste something, or that you smell something. Buddha has also said it on a different spiritual meridian, but very close, being very close to Krishna and to the mentality of Krishna, that each pleasure is sooner or later followed by a pain, and there is no pleasure which can last forever, exactly as there is no hill which can last forever, and every hill is sooner or later followed by a valley. And because of this, this philosophy, it is the same. As long as you accept pleasure, you have to accept pain. If you accept light, you have to accept darkness. Because whenever you produce an intense localized light, in some places, such as behind objects which are in the way of that light, there will always appear a cone of shadow and therefore darkness. If you want to have light, you have to put up with the fact that you are going to encounter some shadow or some darkness. If you want to have pleasure, then you have to put up with the idea that there will be some displeasure. It's simply logical. It hurts to hear it because most people live in this Svadistanistic Fata Morgana into this glamour that perhaps it would be possible to cheat and to have 75% pleasure and maybe only 25% pain. <clears throat> Actually, as soon as you produce a proton, you have to produce an electron. As soon as you produce a plus electric particle, the universe has to create a minus electric particle simply to keep the balance. Therefore, in the big picture, pleasure and pain can be only 50-50. And the fact that a person in one life, because of having a good karma, which is an anomaly, it is a deviation of, from the zero, 
<clears throat> that a person can seem to have much more pleasure than pain, it's not a permanent truth. It does not represent the fundamental truth, and it is only a transient state of fact. That is why wise men and wise women have always understood that although you can eat today uh, excellent food, tomorrow you will have a toothache. It's simply the law of the universe that there is no pleasure without pain, exactly as there is no light without the shadow. That's why what the yogis, what the great sages have been looking for is not everlasting pleasure. They have looked for happiness. And happiness is not the same thing with pleasure. The most primary way of thinking of most people is that a lot of pleasure will make one happy. That is simply not true. That is simply just a selfish limitation of our egos, which looking for pleasure simply tries to create a mantra, tries to create a dogma <clears throat> that that's what you have to do. Happiness is not a state which is related to pleasure and pain, because happiness it is coming from self-realization, it is coming from meaning, from internal meaning, and therefore happiness it is something which is irrelevant or without reference to pleasure and pain. This is very difficult to understand. It involves a supreme detachment and Krishna speaks often and the message of Vedanta and much of the Indian, much of the Hindu and Buddhist spiritual message is precisely about letting go of this duality of pleasure and pain and moving to something which is higher. Constantly, constantly the spiritualists of India and Tibet are going into this middle path in which the extremes of pleasure and pain are not really the ones which should be considered. Um, of course, it doesn't mean that people are advised to look for pain as much as they look for pleasure. It is significant, of course, it is normal for the healthy human brain as it would be for any healthy animal to look for what is pleasant. Maybe somehow it is possible to have a sublimation, an annihilation of some factors in existence, but one has, first of all, to eliminate this obsession which identifies pleasure of the five senses with happiness. Happiness is coming from something deeper than simply the pleasure of the senses, and one has to look somewhere else. And Krishna has a very abrupt... Krishna looks at it from the standpoint of the infinite. Krishna passes a judgment which is exactly like Jesus when he says, if your right hand or your eye prevents you from coming to the kingdom of heaven, pluck out your eye. Cut off your right arm because it is better to reach there without your right arm than not to reach at all. That's of course a sort of extreme fanaticism. It is a surrender, a devotion, an aspiration, which is the kind of thing which belonged to a Ramakrishna, to a Milarepa, to others of their caliber, that you are ready to give everything, you are ready to even undergo pain and frustration just to reach to the real happiness. And Krishna here 
makes a wonderful judgment ultimately because he says the enjoyments that are born of contacts of senses with their targets are generators of pain only for they have a beginning and an end, O Arjuna. What he means is only something which is eternal can truly make the soul happy. Anything which has a beginning and an end is due, is necessarily going to produce pain. For example, people say life is beautiful. And then we have death. And death then is not beautiful. For most, If life is beautiful, then death is not beautiful. If death is beautiful, then life is not beautiful. You can say that both of them are divine. Both of them are happy, but pleasant and unpleasant. This you cannot apply. This you will, you will always have an opposition. So Krishna, thinking from a strictly metaphysical standpoint, he says, because the senses refer to something limited, everything which is limited is not God. Since it is not God, it is not ananda, it is not bliss, it is not beatitude, it is not true happiness, and therefore is just yin and yang, up and down, hill and valley, light and shadow, and therefore it's the soap opera of life. It's the soap opera of existence. So his judgment is necessarily good. He says, conceptually, basically, the senses can generate only a transient contentment, and sooner or later you will see their lack. Sooner or later you will see their deprivation. And then you are going to experience the opposite side, the painful side. That is why one has to look for happiness which is not related to those. In the Vedantic tradition, they use this in the straightforward way, like Brahmacharya to conserve the sexual energy. The most straightforward conclusion of it is stay away from any form of sexual activity because in that way you can simply keep your sexual energy to yourself. That's always one of the solutions. And then there is the other solution, which is a savant solution, which is a knowledgeable, which is a know-how filled solution, which is the tantric solution. In a similar way here, when somebody says the enjoyments that are born of the contacts of the senses generate pain because they are not eternal, obviously, then automatically do, that simply means the direct conclusion is do not go for the enjoyment which is born of the contacts of the senses. Like stop enjoying good food, stop enjoying beautiful things, Stop enjoying great contact on your skin or wherever because all this is just a sort of masturbation of the senses and it doesn't lead anywhere. It's just a desperate attempt to produce endorphins or something and to produce pleasure of the senses. And you should know that Buddha and Krishna both said it, it cannot last forever. At the best, there would be hill, valley, hill, valley, hill, valley, and that kind of thing. But of course, 
this primitive interpretation also does not exclude the fact that there is a tantric interpretation. The tantric interpretation does not say that you should stay away from it, as it didn't say you should stay away from the sexual manifestation. It says the sexual manifestation can be done in such a way so that you, it can be done still with spirituality. The contacts of the sense organs can be used in a different way, not like sex just for procreation, but they can be used for bliss. And exactly in the same way, the contacts of the sense organs can be used for finding happiness. This is the tantric message which says there is no need to cut everything. Now I don't want to feel anything. I want to live in a sort of eternal pratyahara. I want to live into an eternal state of insulation, of isolation from any external stimuli. I, that's exactly what some spiritualists try. Don't enjoy food, don't enjoy smell, don't have pleasure, don't have pain, be in a complete equanimity. And as Bhagavad Gita itself said, if you see a pile of earth or a mound of gold, if you look at a learned Brahmin or at a dog or at an outcast, you shouldn't care, there is no difference, you should practice this total equanimity. The same equanimity would have been required here, like don't look for anything pleasurable, don't run away from anything painful, just let them happen. It's like don't pay attention to any of them, don't put too much emphasis on any of them, don't seek for any of them. Here the tantric tradition says no, because actually the nature of the divine consciousness, one of the characteristics of the divine consciousness is ananda, and ananda means bliss, beatitude. It means happiness which is not from the senses, and therefore you cannot say automatically that, oh, if you are spiritual, you are never looking for anything good or pleasant. Because some people would say, wait a second, in a certain way, isn't bliss pleasant? Like when somebody experiences a state of ananda, although infinitely superior, although incomparable to the pleasures of the senses, nevertheless, isn't that ecstatic thing somewhat pleasant? Like nobody complains of the ecstasy as being painful or... It's true, there have been mystics who experienced very complex mystical states, but then they were not experiencing the pure state of ecstasy, beatitude, bliss, or ananda, as it is called in Sanskrit. If we isolate it to that isn't it nevertheless described as pleasant and more as hyper-pleasant or something of the kind? Yes, and therefore this means automatically that the pleasures of the senses, they have a gate towards something which is infinitely bigger. Exactly as the pleasure experienced in the sexual contact 
tickle some of your nerves, so to speak. They are not nerves, of course, which can go all the way in Sahasrara. And people that are experienced in the tantric practices, sometimes they don't feel a genital or sexual pleasure anymore. They feel a pleasure somewhere in their crown chakra. And that pleasure is like, it's exactly the similar as if your genitals have been moved on top of the head. And although you know it's impossible to physically feel any blissfully pleasant sensation here or anywhere in the area of the head and the higher chakras, nevertheless that is the biological or the experiential truth of it. And therefore, here we have a loophole. That means Krishna, when, when explaining it, when expressing it in this way, he does not bother to give the tantric interpretation. Although Krishna in many, many ways, and I explained it in many of the shlokas of the strophes which I, which I commented for you until now in the previous sessions, in the previous satsangs, Krishna often explains, expresses a point of view which is tantric which can be considered purely tantric. Nevertheless, in this situation, by leaving the statement blunt and simple like this, actually Krishna rather opens the, the door towards a Vedantic, dry, ascetic type of interpretation. And it is my duty to round that up by telling you that while the, the traditional truth is there, he expresses the truth metaphysically, nevertheless when it comes to the method for attaining what he says, there are two types of methods. And one method would be indeed to stay away from the contacts of the sense organs, which means to practice a lifelong pratyahara, to numb yourself to the universe so that you live, but you don't really live. You are like passing, like the swan passes through the water. You pass through the water, but you don't get wet. You just shake yourself off, and then the water is gone. So you live without getting wet through the ocean of samsara. Or you can practice the knowledge-filled attitude of tantra, which says if you go through those sensations but you put awareness into them and you connect that awareness to the source, to the cosmic source, to the divine source, then there is a loophole there because you can transform even the sensations of the senses into a spiritual enlightenment. Like you can transform work and action into a spiritual enlightenment, you can transform singing and playing and devotion like in bhajan and kirtan and love and emotion into a divine accomplishment, although they are particular emotions and you should stay away from any particular emotion or such phenomenon. And yes, but this is only the tantric tradition, both of India and Tibet, which has explored that kind of thing, that certain visual perceptions, certain auditory perceptions, certain touch, tactile perceptions, taste and olfactory, 
they can be transformed into states of bliss, into states of samadhi by using them, by subliming them, by consecrating them, by taking them from their chakras to sahasrara, by connecting them to the crown chakra. Therefore, again, the fact that Krishna says all pleasures born of contact are only sources of sorrow, they have a beginning and an end, O Arjuna, is true. That's the metaphysical thing. The infinite being which you have inside you, your spirit, your Atman, cannot be satisfied with anything which is limited. That is why any pleasure of the senses is like insufficient and sooner or later it brings about a frustration. And the fact that he says the enlightened man does not rejoice in them, that's a partial truth where he favors, like it sounds very dry. <clears throat> this is the kind of statement which will make people say, okay, so spirituality is really tough. Look what Krishna says. All pleasures born of senses, of the five senses, are sources of sorrow. They have a beginning and an end. That's the being the explanation. And the enlightened man does not rejoice in them. That's very tough. It basically says, if you want to become a monk, if you want to become a sadhu, a sannyasi, a spiritually committed person, stop enjoying the contacts of the senses. Many people will say, I'm too young, maybe I'm not ripe enough, I don't believe that much in God, I don't know if I'm ready to throw myself in such a thing, and therefore the sacrifice which is asked of me is simply too big. Fortunately, the tantric tradition brings this bridging thing, which is a fit thing for a society like Kali Yuga, because it says, if in the beginning you are so attached to the contacts of the sense organs, then at least practice them in a wise way. You can practice the contacts of the sense organs as you usually do looking for pleasurable sensations, but at least project those pleasurable sensations in Sahasrara. By projecting them into Sahasrara, you consecrate them to God. It's like an offering. It's exactly like you throw things in a fire, in the fire of your aspiration, and you offer them to God. And at the same time, by pushing them into Sahasrara, they become equal to zero. They are not plus or minus because they have crossed that limit. And because of this, they are not going to produce the opposite. You can have an action without a reaction. That's exactly what Krishna has been saying all the time, but he is not ready to apply that to the sensory thing, either because his words were not fully preserved and he actually meant it that way, or simply because the culture in which he was speaking was not yet a fully tantric culture and most of the uh, spiritualists of the time were actually ascetics, hermits, people living into this kind of, in that kind of tradition rather. One way or another, remember that that's exactly what Karma Yoga says. You can make a colony for lepers, build a hospital, feed 150 orphan children, uh, make a university of yoga or publish books on 
spiritual truth and get no karma from it. How? Because you consecrated to God and this good thing which was supposed to bring you good spiritual karma, it won't even bring you good spiritual karma. It is given to God with the words, all glory be to God. <clears throat> and thus you have renounced the fruits of the action. In a similar way, you can cheat by experiencing a pleasurable thing without needing to experience a pain afterwards. That's what Tantra offers. It says you can experience a pleasurable thing, but then it would mean that everybody that does sexual Tantra, for example, and experiences an overwhelming amount of sensual pleasure, is automatically condemned to die in agony of cancer or something, because for so much physical pleasure that you have experienced, now you have a bill which is kilometer long, of pains which are simply the negativity of it. But that's not true if you consecrate it, if you offer it exactly as Krishna says about everything else, that's precisely the message. Then you transform it into something which is zero, neutral, like Brahman, which he mentions, like the transcendent divine consciousness, which is neither plus nor minus. <coughs> And therefore, while Krishna is perfectly true, abruptly true, about the metaphysical essence, indeed that is a point for all of you to meditate. That is why it is very short-sighted to just live for sensations. Sensations, you can become very indifferent to some sensations. Like, I see many people into spirituality, even in the school yogis, some of you, I mean, some of the pupils, and then they do something, they engage in a project, and somebody is worried. Oh, but can you do this? Oh, but are you sure? Aren't you cold? Aren't you hungry? Aren't you this? And people, some people in yoga, they seem to have almost a contempt to it. They say, no, no, there's no problem. Who cares about, you know, like I'm getting a bit tired, or I'm getting a bit, or I had to do like, who cares? Like people develop a sort of contempt, pleasurable or painful, I don't care anyway. I'm doing this because in my soul I am happy. It's the right thing to do and because I do the right thing my soul is happy and if I do whatever is right with some pleasure or with some pain, it doesn't seem to make much difference, at least up till a point up till a point which is given by our human limitations, <coughs> there are many people who would be contemptuous of a bit of extra comfort or a bit of extra discomfort. On the contrary, when you are not in a state of consecration, surrender, Ishvara Pranidana, aspiration, then automatically you start caring about comfort and discomfort and you can complain because suddenly you are like Jesus on the cross when he says, my God, my God, why have you left me? Suddenly grace left me and I start nagging. I start being a nag because I'm not in that state of grace. I'm not carried by this aspiration. And then suddenly I start measuring, I start bargaining. This is not so pleasant for me. This is, not, this is disturbing me. But again, 
when you are full on in that state of grace, there naturally appears a tendency to be contemptuous, to, yeah, right, sure, it's a bit unpleasant, but kind of I had to do it, and that was a wonderful thing to do. And people even refuse help, refuse support, not because they are selfish, not because they are proud or arrogant, simply because it doesn't hurt them, it doesn't please them. They are enjoying a third thing which is beyond pleasure and pain. They are enjoying happiness because they feel they are on. They feel they do something right. <clears throat> but otherwise, the statement of Krishna is right. And remember, however, that there exist two ways of dealing with this. The primitive way which simply says become thick-skinned, become equanimous, don't rejoice when things are too good and then you are not going to cry too much when things are too bad, or the tantric way inspired from the very soul of Krishna, which is not clearly mentioned here. Sometimes it was in many shlokas I call your attention. See what Krishna says here can be interpreted the non-tantric way as well as the tantric way. Here the formulation or at least the way it has been translated. I am not an ace translator in Sanskrit to know exactly the shades, the poetic shades. Because Sanskrit is a very difficult language with a lot of shades. Poetry, double entendre, multiple layers of meanings. And because of this, I am unable. I have to rely on the translations of others. But if those others here, they have been a little bit opinionated, a little bit biased, a little bit skewed on that side, then they would use in English a word which is a little bit tougher. So the wise, the enlightened man, does not rejoice in them. Maybe actually the original meaning can be said, the enlightened man or the wise one, the, the sages, do not seek them, are not addicted to them, are not completely crazy about them. They do not turn their lives around because of them. But when you say that do not rejoice in them, it means like you don't at all. It's like if somebody gives you some, if somebody gives to Ramakrishna some good food, Ramakrishna will almost have to make an effort not to rejoice in it. Like, damn, this food is way too good, you know. It's like, you are tempting me, you know. You are making me rejoice, you know. Let me hate it a little bit and kind of make myself bitter and angry at it a little bit. And then I'm eating it, but with disdain, you know, yeah, right. It's a very delicious food, right. But I'm not feeling anything because I don't rejoice in it. That's absurd. It sound, you can know that it is absurd and obvious. Even Milarepa is given some good food in the 12th, in the 13th century Tibet. And he rejoices in it. He realizes it's good food and he did not have any good food for 30 years. It makes a difference when finally he gets some good food after 30 years of eating some boring grass on the slope of a hill. And therefore, here realize that there is a truth hidden which Krishna either doesn't say or says it and it's not properly translated 
because it's a shade there, and that is what do we do with the pleasures, how to deal with them. I hope you understood clearly the tantric position. The tantric position says it is okay to have pleasures, at the same time not being attached, being detached, and at the same time consecrating them. If you give them to God, then the pleasures are transmuted into ananda. And ananda you can have as much as you want, because that hill is not followed by a valley, because ananda is not a hill. Ananda is the omnipresent bliss of the divine consciousness. And thus, the tantrics have found another way. This story with the pleasure of the senses is a moot point when it comes to the tantric and non-tantric spirituality. This is one of the crossroads because indeed all the non-tantrics have this dogma, have this neurosis that any pleasurable contact of the senses it's going to make you a prisoner and a slave and you should kind of rabidly refuse it, stay away from it. And he gives a very beautiful image in the strophe number 23 where he continues by saying he who is able, of course it means she as well but it's an old-fashioned text. He who is able, while still here in this world, to withstand before the liberation from the body, the impulse before born of desire and anger, he is a yogi. He is a happy man. This is very, very relevant. Again, he who is able, even here, before liberation from the body, what is liberation from the body? That's death. Because it is possible for a human being to accumulate so much merit, and it was happening more in the old yugas, in the old ages where Krishna is coming from, that some people, if they live the spiritual life, that spiritual life automatically became their last life on earth. They reach the first degree of moksha or mukti, liberation, and then when they passed away, they had reached a form of enlightenment. This is called in Sanskrit language, mrityu, mukti, and it means that you reach mukti at the time of mrita, mritya, which is death. And many, even of the great yogis of modern times, have been considered to be mrityu muktis. Like Swami Vivekananda of India was told by Ramakrishna, instead of you having samadhi over samadhi like me, and said Ramakrishna, that was his weird point of view, wasting your time in samadhi too much, I have simply prayed for you and got the approval for it that you should not have samadhi while you are alive here, you just had a few in the beginning to see the point, And then when you will die, you will have as much samadhi as you want. And then, in these years, while you will still be on earth, you can be efficient and all your reward is coming afterwards. Vivekananda of India was a mrityu mukti, 
Mahatma Gandhi was called by Swami Shivananda and by Sri Aurobindo Mrityu Mukti, like not liberated in his life, but liberated after death. Many theologies, even in the Christian theology, there are theologians who say only after you die and leave your body can you have some sort of other knowledge of God with your soul because your soul is obscured by the body right now and because of this you can't fully understand the unlimited character, the infinite blissful character of God. But when you die and go to the judgment day, if you are happy enough to go in the kingdom of heaven, there you will experience <coughs> everlasting peace and all that stuff. Therefore, this is not the only place where the statement is there. That's why Krishna mentions it. It's implicit. It's between the lines. But it tells us very clearly that this was an implicit knowledge to which he alludes. So he says again, he who is able, even here before liberation from the body, which means during the lifetime, either you are Mrityu Mukti or not, during the lifetime, he who is able to resist the excitement born of desire and anger. He just mentions these two. The Yoga Sutra of Patanjali mentions five poisons, other texts mention three poisons. The Tibetan yoga talking about the poisons of the five elements of the first five chakras also mentions five poisons. Like different systems will list the so-called poisons, the chains which maintain the human being according to different standards. Here, for example, Krishna mentions only two. Somebody wanting to be scrupulous would say, it's like Krishna wants to say the excitement born of desire, anger, etc. Like if you want to be scrupulous, you can work on the list. But Krishna uses it symbolically because if you deal with desire and anger, then of course you deal with the whole thing. A spiritual person would not stop halfway, not being informed by all the poisons which afflict the human being. And that is why this list is not complete. This list is symbolic. So he says, he who is able before the liberation, even here during the lifetime, to resist the excitement born of desire and anger. He means like attraction and rejection because what you desire you want, what you are angry on you don't want. You send it away. And therefore... It's about attraction and rejection. It is about the good old attachment which makes us that we want the things which we like and we run away from the things which hurt us. The famous, again, aparigraha, attachment, detachment. So he who is able even here to resist the excitement born of desire and anger is united with the divine, is a yogi, a yogi, don't forget that the word yoga means union. So to be a yogi means to be united. With what? To be united with the divine. The word yoga, when you translate it as union, it is equivalent with the Latin Christian term unio mystica. Mystical union between the soul and God, between the individual 
and the universal. So, to say that he is a yogi means, because normally when we say, oh, you are a yogi, you are a yogi. It means you are a practitioner of yoga. But in a more exclusive expression, to be a yogi means to be a yogi that has reached to the end of yoga. It means to be a yogi that has reached fulfillment. Says one yoga text, the one who did and this and this, he is a yogi, he has reached yoga and enlightenment. If you have reached yoga, it is equivalent with saying you have reached samadhi, you have reached moksha or mukti, you have reached enlightenment. And that's, that's the way Krishna uses here. And he says, he is a happy man. It is true that he uses here the word sukhi, sukhi narak, sukhe narak, but that's a very strange way of saying because the word sukha, like in sukhasana, means pleasant, it means a more diluted pleasure. And sukhe narak would be in a man with pleasure. But of course, the Sanskrit language is oblique and poetic, as I often told you, and because of this, he means one that has reached happiness, true happiness. He is a happy man in the meaning of having reached the real happiness, which cannot be taken away. So let's hear it again. He who is able, while still here in this world, to withstand before the liberation from the body, the impulse born of desire and anger, he is a yogi, he is a happy man. Krishna simply sets a standard. Are you able in this life to withstand the impulse, which is the excitement, which is born out of desire and anger? Let's take two out of those many which may be on that list. Let's take these two as headlines, as really significant. Then you are, a, I desire something. So many people desire. They come to me and they say, Swami, I desire, I discovered something which makes me, I desire. I desire to have a family. I desire to have children. I desire to live uh, in the North Pole. I desire whatever they come up with. Either it's realistic or unrealistic. People say, I desire something. And that desire, you see, Milarepa didn't have that desire. You probably cannot imagine you just go into a 10-day meditation retreat and there you see the desire. You are frustrated because you cannot talk to your friends, because you cannot surf on the internet, because you don't have time to fool around, because you can't do this and that. And already in 10 days, desire shows its fangs. If ever you go to make a retreat which is 17 days, 21 days, or other retreats which are even longer, then this desire becomes maddening. In the moment when you take the decision to make a retreat of three years, for example, there it's like suddenly your mind knows, for the next three years I have cut off all my choices, all my options. It's like I have buried myself alive right now here, for three years I have pledged myself to do this. That's why the longer the retreat, it's not that it's difficult. Retreats are not difficult for your knees or for... You can always cope with it. 
it's not really that retreats are difficult. They are difficult because they frustrate your desires. Because you know that all your dreams have to be postponed. The longer the retreat, the more the abyss in the beginning. That's why it's the same with tapas. Let's say you take a tapas, I'm going to be celibate for the next 12 years. That's not necessarily difficult in itself. What is difficult is the choice. It's the fact that your mind screams in agony, saying it's not possible, you are taking away from me all my choices, my freedom to choose to is taken away. That is where the problem truly is there. And that's why to refrain the impulse born of desire, it's difficult because people do something and suddenly they say, I want to paint. I suddenly got the inspiration, I'm going to paint. Yantras, angels, something, you know. And it's not, it's a desire. It can be a desire which you turn into karma yoga, consecrate it to God, and thus annihilate it, turn it into zero by transmuting it to purusha, to the transcendent level. But there are desires. People sit and sit and sit, and it happens, not only when you go into a retreat. If you live in Kopangan for six months, there are many, many things which you can't do in Kopangan, and that's why some business people thrive on the fact that Westerners have so many needs which are unfulfilled. And if you provide one of those needs, people are going to jump at it because there is the desire. The desire is there. And many people, you know, they say, oh, I have to get out of here. Like, why? There have been people a hundred years ago who lived here all their lives. All the fishermen family from this island, they lived here. If they ever took a trip, they sailed their boat to Koh Samui, that was, and Koh Samui didn't have the Chaweng Beach and the Tesco in those days, there was a huge event and not everybody did it. Like people could live in a village and in one place, not doing too many things for a lifetime. Their expectations were not there. It doesn't mean that they didn't have desire, but their desires, they were blowing off the steam somewhere else. That simply says, supervise yourselves. What is this desire? It is produced very often by impatience. We call it impatience. Like you stay and stay and stay, and sometimes you just have to blow off the steam. It is one of the reasons for which we even limited the stay of the people so that people can learn only one certain number of levels every year, because especially the beginners, we know, they make one level, two levels, three levels, five levels, depending on how their brain is formatted, how much aspiration they have, and then they say, I need to go somewhere to think about this. It's like the pressure is too intense, and there appear desires. And you cannot correctly identify those desires, but those desires create like a volcano ready to erupt. There is a restlessness under your skin, because actually there are desires, impatience, and many, many other similar things. And he mentions here also anger. 
he is talking to Arjuna, who is a warrior, a kshatriya from the warrior class. He is having a big Manipura. He is in a state of war. In war, it's very easy to let go and to, to surrender to the anger, to be overwhelmed by anger. And I guess that's why Krishna chooses anger out of the list. But he could have simply said desire, or he could have as well mentioned the whole list of poisons which afflicts the human being. Again, this is a compromise middle of the way. It's not only about desire and anger, it's about all the things which are produced by the five senses and the poisons of the five senses, of the five elements, of the five chakras, which, just for your information, in Tibetan Buddhism, when they analyze the poisons of the elements, they speak about vanity and arrogance, they speak about anger, they speak about lust, they, which could be called desire as well, but it's lust, they mean specifically more inferior desires. They speak about jealousy, and last but not least, they speak about ignorance. So therefore, Krishna would have said, the one who is not giving in to the impulse born of vanity, anger, lust, jealousy, and it's not only about those two, those two are chosen as flagships of a much longer list, which represents simply the poisons that afflict the human being in the evolution. And the standard is clear. And this standard is something which you can put on your mirror in the bathroom and read it every morning to see if you are getting closer to the standard. He who is able, while still here in this world, to withstand before the liberation from the body, the impulse born of desire and anger, and the others, he is a yogi, he is a happy man. There is a proverb in India which says the rich man, the truly rich man, is the one who is poor in desires. When you have too many desires, it never feels like you are rich. For example, the people that have a desire focused on financial, on money, on wealth, they never stop. Very seldom do they stop. Because what drives them is the desire. And when you have 10,000, you want 100,000. And when you have 100,000, you want a million. And when you have a million, you want 10 million. And when you have 10, it will, you will feel more secure if you hand 100. And the race continues like chasing a carrot hanging in front of your nose. You never get to catch it because the problem is the desire. You have the propensity towards it. You have the desire and it's the desire which never stops. It's not the fact in itself. The person that has lots of desires is never rich because they don't feel rich. They always feel like it's not enough right now we have to do some more. Remember, the desire, it's a very subtle thing. Look in your lives as yogis. What is, how are the desires playing with you? And are you really ready to give them to God, to consecrate them to a greater good? Because that's the only solution. The other solution is the non-tantric solution, 
where you simply have to cut them off mercilessly. Any desire, any impurity of those, you have to cut them off. Remember, in Tantra, it is allowed to play with the fire a little bit. You can play with Maya, which the others consider it the devil. Here you can play with the Maya, because the Maya is ultimately Shakti, and she is our cosmic mother, and she is loving and auspicious if we invoke her as such, if we don't are afraid of her and curse her, then if we understand the cosmic maternal principle, then she will become auspicious and favorable. That is why, again, always meditate on the path you want to take about these things and meditate on the nature. Where is desire? He, we move to the shloka number 24. He who is ever happy within, who rejoices within, who is illumined within, that's a dual meaning word, will clarify it. Such a yogi attains absolute freedom or moksha, himself becoming Brahman. He whose happiness is within. I'm not happy because I won, I earned money. I'm not happy because my child joined I don't know what famous college. I'm not happy because of those. I'm happy within. My happiness comes from something which is within. The only thing within which can cause happiness is self-realization because you have meaning, you have freedom, and thus you have the essence of happiness. And that is why he who is ever happy within this was one of the lessons of wisdom. Either it was a bravado and he was playing it or not. It's difficult to say, but usually in such difficult situations, people prove their character. There is a British proverb which says the character of people is proven in difficult times, in adversity. That's when you see, because when you are happy, it's easy to be nice. But when you are punished, and really in bad conditions, then it's much more easy to take out your claws and your fangs and to strike back. So, he who is ever happy within. The happiness comes from within. Why are you happy? I can't even explain. I have this happiness which comes from within. I'm not trying to justify it by external things. This comes only from doing the right thing. It comes from feeling intuitively that I am on the right path. So he who is ever happy within, who rejoices within, it's a little bit redundant, whose contentment is within. That's again, I'm not searching it outside, I'm searching it inside, such as I am having a good meal, but this good meal is giving me more energy to be more vital, more active in my spiritual activity, in my spiritual practice. If I have a good meal, maybe I can do a better yoga practice. 
if I have been doing something pleasurable in sexual tantra, maybe I can feel my higher chakras more and I can do something more spiritual as well. This point of view is exactly like a sublimation or a consecration. Like I rejoice within means I have always to find a reason which is spiritual. It can sound like, well, isn't it a hypocrisy? No, it is a consecration because it is not forbidden to consecrate something which you like. You are not supposed to consecrate only things which you dislike. Consecrating things which you like as well, it is perfectly okay. It is not necessary that when you do karma yoga or if you do something spiritual you should do only something which is painful punishing hard so that people say oh look at poor walter poor walter is such a martyr nobody would have done what poor walter is doing and all that kind of stuff no and of course then if poor walter is doing something beautiful or something nice such as poor Walter is traveling a lot. And then people who love traveling, they hate the guts of Walter. They envy Walter. They say, you are so smart. You chose a good life for yourself. Wish I had your life that I could travel on the money of the yoga school or something and just move from city to city. That's my lifestyle. I would like to have that. Like people think that if you do something which is pleasant, then automatically it's guilty. Just show us that you do something painful. Die on a cross a little bit, please, and then we will worship you and admire you. But if you are having sex, or if you are traveling, that we cannot, because we always have suspicions that actually you are cheating. That cannot be. The work of God is so pleasant, Very tricky. You must have been a very clever one to choose out of all the works that one can do for God, something so which favors you so much. Are you sure you are not lying to yourself? You can see exactly where the point is, because of course the point is a mistrust generated by envy, because the person says, should I be in your shoes? Maybe I wouldn't be detached and I would be cheating. And therefore it's a projection in which a thief thinks that everyone else is a thief. A thief thinks he's surrounded by thieves. According to the famous dictum, the beauty is in the eyes of the onlooker. And therefore there is a lot of projection there. And therefore rejoicing within You do pleasurable or non-pleasurable things, rejoice within. Milarepa learned how to be happy about his spiritual practice, although his spiritual practice was not fun. But still he learned, and he was asked by somebody, get out of your cave, come and live among people. What are you doing up there, like looking like a ghost, and so on. And he sang songs of enlightenment, and he said, no, I have to stay here because I have committed heinous murders. I have to save the soul of my mother, of my father, of my family, of this. I have to do redemptive work here. Like he felt a happiness within. I'm sitting here and doing a very compassionate work for myself and for others as well. 
So that's why the expression says, he who is happy, is his happiness is within, his contentment is within, who's, who is illumined within, which is a bit of a double entendre because the light, it also means to the, when you say geoti, the light, it also means the light of the eye, of the eyes. So it means the sight, which means his, whose sight is all within. That means who looks within, who is illumined within, who sees himself or herself within, it would almost be equivalent the one, the he or she, who knows himself or herself. That is to be illumined within. It's exactly like you put a torch inside and you see what was hidden. You see yourself you are aware of who you are and you are not trying to live in, a, in an artificial world. Very often people are just on a race to cure defects. But people don't realize that if you are a Virgo or an Aries or an Aquarius, if you are a sanguine temperament or a melancholic temperament or a choleric temperament, if you are a number one on the Enneagram or a number four on the Enneagram or a number seven on the Enneagram, you cannot much change those. And that is why some characteristics which could be considered even defects, they stay with you. Even when you become like Shivananda and Ramakrishna, they stay with you. Everybody can look at Vivekananda and Ramakrishna or at Shivananda and Ramakrishna and say which one of them was an earth sign astrologically and which one of them was an air sign astrologically. Even when you become like Vivekananda and Ramakrishna, you don't change some things. It's just a utopia in some people that you change. I believed in it also 30 years ago because I believed that when you reach like Ramakrishna, your mustache becomes virile and black and elegant and your feet become smaller and harmonious and uh, your liver gets healed instantaneously and all that. It isn't. Later on when I experienced states of consciousness like those, then I understood that they had a totally different scope and relevance. And that is why one has to be illumined within. One has to know themselves. There are people who simply put up with it. I have the memory of an elephant. I never forget things. And this is sometimes so good and so useful. And sometimes it's a curse. And it is really can serve as a negativity. Some people, on the contrary, they are very forgetful. And sometimes this can be a gift because you can forgive 70 times sevens like Jesus simply because you forget, forget, you forgive because you forget. And some people, by being very forgetful, they can create so much mess and forget things which are important and which are a matter of, you know, holding a promise, sticking to your word, doing things. And it's just forgetfulness. And then people will treat that as a vice. People will treat that as something negative. And then people cannot be happy with themselves. People cannot be illumined themselves. People say, I am uh, like this and like this. 
and I am a conflict-seeking person because I am a choleric temperament and I always am trying to confront people immediately. I am a very confrontational person who doesn't take one millimeter of patience on some issues, on some directions, and I will correct myself. No, you won't. Just try to give it to God. Make it something good for God. Consecrate it to God. Learn where your place is. Maybe if you are a choleric, conflict-seeking, unforgiving person, maybe you should become an exorcist and start fighting the demons. Because a choleric temperament is very good for exorcists. You should snap at the slightest small of a demon. As soon as you sniff a demonic thing, you should hop at it like a tiger. And, you know, just not forgive it for a second. Constantly, constantly be on the chase for it. The right man at the right place. You have to find your position. For everybody, with every temperament, there is a place in the economy of God. And that is why it's very important to know yourself. Because some things you cannot really correct. You can correct the moral and ethical things. Those, yes. But besides the moral and ethical things, which are correctable because those are about the object of our emotions, of our temperament, when it comes to our characteristic, if you are born with blue eyes, it is 99.999999% that you will die with blue eyes. There are some things which you simply don't change. You can't change. And that is why, please remember that this is an important thing. Here it is mentioned passingly. At other times we'll speak more about it. So he who is happy within, whose happiness is put on the internal things, he whose contentment is within, so you look for the contentment of the within, he who is illumined within, who knows himself or herself, such a yogi, attains absolute freedom or moksha. That's the promise of Krishna. If you have this happiness within, then you are one with Brahman, then you attain eternal happiness, then you attain becoming Brahman or becoming the divine consciousness, being one with Brahman. This is also theologically a very important text because Krishna says very clearly what is the nature of freedom, moksha, what is the nature of enlightenment. Because he says such a yogi attains absolute freedom, he himself being in the divine consciousness, one with Brahman. You cannot attain divine or eternal freedom not being one with Brahman, for example. Just to give a, I attained this, but I am not one with Brahman, one with the Absolute. It's not possible, because only Brahman is Absolute, eternal and free. If you would attain eternal freedom, but not be one with Brahman, then it means there are two Absolutes, and you have invented a second God, a competition God. That's not possible simply semantically and ontologically. It's simply not possible. 
And that is why, of course, I'm using it as an absurd argument or to demonstrate the absurdity of an argument. And that is why Krishna says it very clearly. He who is ever happy within, like even when alone, he who rejoices within, who is illumined within, such a yogi attains absolute freedom or moksha, himself becoming Brahman. He doesn't say himself becoming a servant of Brahman, himself becoming a slave of God, himself worshipping God, himself being graced by God, himself sitting by the right hand of God. He actually uses a word which says being one with Brahman, becoming one with Brahman. This formulation brings Krishna to the level of monistic spirituality. Krishna speaks about becoming one with the divine consciousness, merging with the divine consciousness, which is a typically monistic, or for those of you who don't know the word monistic, non-dualistic. This is a typically non-dualistic consciousness, a non-dualistic formulation. We will go for one more tonight and then we will stop. And here it goes. Number 25 reads as follows. The sages obtain absolute freedom or moksha. They whose sins have been destroyed, whose dualities are torn asunder, who are self-controlled and intend on the welfare of all beings. Let's read it in a slightly different translation. The seers whose sins are destroyed, destroyed, whose doubts are dispelled, who are self-controlled and take delight in doing good to all creatures, they, are, they attain eternal freedom in the divine consciousness. This is the statement of it. He simply defines again and again in a different way the sages the enlightened beings, who, who are those, after all you say, out of the people who do yoga, who are those who shall attain eternal freedom, moksha? How, what is that moksha? Who goes, who of the practitioners goes to the divine consciousness? And there exists a tendency to say, those who do more yoga, because people live in a very utilitarian way, it's like you do more yoga, you get more results. And while that is true in its own domain, it's not enough to do yoga because doing yoga transforms the human being. And even if you are doing yoga in a more compulsive, egocentric, materialistic or mechanical way, your practice of yoga changes because you change and your view on things changes. So it is true in an indirect way that sure, those who do more practice, they get more results. That's what the yoga texts say. But here Krishna looks at it from a different angle. He never mentions he who does yoga from morning till evening and so on. Obviously you have to do yoga to obtain some of these qualities, but he simply puts it directly through those qualities. Yoga has changed a lot. At the time of Krishna, 
3,000, 4,000, 5,000 years ago, whenever that is, because it is historically ambiguous. At the time of Krishna, human beings were different. As I tell you, even 100 years ago, the fishermen on this island, they had, they had a very, very, very different life and a very, very, very different level of excitement and excitation in their daily life as compared to us today who are whipped, who whip our nervous system with so much stimuli, so much excitation of all kinds, which when we lack, then we have deprivation uh, symptoms and all the rest. And here, uh, the people at the time of Krishna, when they decided, I want to be detached, I want to have more courage, I want... It was more easy to manipulate the mind. It was not necessary to use so much technology. Until 2,000 years ago in yoga, there does not exist too much particular technology. Like today when we tell to a human being, have more courage. And people say, Swami, it's easier said than done. What shall I do? And then we tell them, for God's sake, do Trikonasana, do Udhyanabandha, do Danurasana, work on Manipura like crazy and you will see the effects appearing. These are props. Like people can be more brave without doing that if with their mind they go directly to the source of it. Like, oh, I should be more brave. Okay, I'm going to be more brave starting with tomorrow. And then somebody says, how do you do it? It's like my Manipura was there and I never used to access it. It was like a sleep. And now because my mind is clean, my chakras are clean, I just looked into it became aware of it because you talked to me about it, and lo, there it is. Like it's too good to be true. You talked to me about it, I got it. But then in Kali Yuga, the spirits become more inferior, more materialistic, more impure, more blocked, and even when you tell them, be brave, they say, I cannot, I don't know how. And then you have to come with props. And thus yoga became more prop-filled. There is no Udhyana Bandha described in any text 25 centuries ago. Udhyana Bandha is described probably first time some 15 centuries ago. Because that's when it became necessary. That's when the souls became, the incarnated souls, the atmosphere on earth became even more heavy. And then a yogi like Matsyendra got this information directly from Shiva, and he said, let there be Udhyanabandha. And Udhyanabandha was, and it became part of yoga, because it did not exist before. It was not necessary. Please realize this, it's very difficult to understand. People were very different in spirituality. When the apostles of Jesus and the first Christians got baptized, Christian, Many, many of them, most of them, entered into states of ecstasy. They reached states of samadhi just because they were baptized. Today, people go and they get baptized and they don't feel anything. Because the, the hearts are hardened. And then somebody will say, you don't need only to get baptized. You also need to do lots of cobra, lots of pranayama, lots of kirtan and bhajan. Because just getting a baptism and opening to Jesus, you, you can't do it. 
you don't do it and your heart chakra is blocked and all that. People were different. Spiritual practice was very different. And again, Krishna doesn't say how you obtain those, but he, he seems to believe that you obtain it simply by doing it. You, there is simply a direct way of doing it with the mind that corresponds in the practice of yoga to a superior arousing of Ajna Chakra. When Ajna Chakra is developed in a superior way, you sort of instantaneously know how to do some things, although you never learn them from anybody. And somehow you just say, oh, you want me to meditate with Ganesha? Sure, I can meditate with Ganesha. Where do you get it from? I don't know. It's like my mind knows already. And it's no mystery. It's so straightforward. It's so simple. This is a form of Ajna Chakra. And all those of you who will develop Ajna Chakra beyond a certain level, you will start seeing this capacity slowly, slowly, first discreetly, and then more emerging in you. So again, the, the sages whose sins are destroyed, whose doubts are dispelled, who are self-controlled and take delight in doing good to all creatures, attain eternal freedom in divine consciousness. Four characteristics are given of the seers who attain moksha and become one with this Brahman, with the absolute consciousness. Their sins have been destroyed. This means the karma has been burned down. So it is important to have terminated the karma. This is one who attains eternal freedom. If you don't terminate the karma, called here in a very peculiar way the sins, he speaks only about the negative karma, but there is also positive karma. Those whose sins are not yet destroyed, they cannot reach eternal freedom, which is pretty logical because the karma is the one that keeps us chained to the manifestation and therefore it is the chain. So those whose sins have been destroyed, those whose dualities or doubts are dispelled, some authors translate it as dualities, which fits more with the spirit of Bhagavad Gita, because Krishna just spoke about that you should not be happy into this and sad into that. You should not be influenced by dualities, by ups and downs. So those who are out of the duality, who can stay in this middle path, but it also means a duality, a typical duality is the doubt that you cannot believe in yourself, you cannot believe in your own path. It is like Swami Vivekananda of India who says, the man of spirituality, the man of faith says, I shall drink the rivers and the lakes and I shall move the mountains out of the way with my own hands. No, like Buddha, he goes to the forest and he knows, I am going to make it or die. There is no alternative to that. Exactly in the same way, those that have doubts, they say, and what if? And what? Ramakrishna doesn't say, and what if? Even Vivekananda, after he is enlightened by Ramakrishna, he doesn't say, and what if? He goes, 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 like a fanatic, completely convinced of what he says, 
and all the other people's doubts, they bounce at him because he has eliminated the dualities, the doubts. Those who are self-controlled. Krishna talked a lot in a previous chapter where he spoke about the control of the self over the mind and of the mind over the senses. And he explained that was he was meaning by self-control. Self-control is a certain state of solarity and at least balance of the yin and yang where things in one's being are to a reasonable extent controlled. Again, we never speak perfectionistically because there is always a grace and a fallible human nature but within certain limits. And finally, those who are intent in the welfare, on the welfare of all beings or those who take delight in doing good to all creatures which is nothing else but the bodhisattva manifestation of compassion. <clears throat> like we could say, but if you reach the divine consciousness which is transcendent and beyond the good and evil, why do good to all creatures? And yet the divine consciousness which is beyond pleasure and pain is blissful, which rather more inclines on the side of the pleasure than on the side of the pain. It's like, it's equal, but not quite equal. No, it's like the divine consciousness is equal on virtue and vice, and yet all the spiritual people are virtuous. And they go on the side of the compassion, love, supporting all beings. That is a very important understanding which in some traditions of Buddhism, Hinduism and others is sometimes not mentioned clearly. They make you, because philosophically and metaphysically it's very nice to say that Brahman, the cosmic consciousness, is beyond any duality, then it's like they would leave it free and they would say, yes, the divine consciousness doesn't really budge a finger, is equal about this and that. That's, however, not true. Because if it would be so, in so many enlightened beings, in the hundred thousand Buddhas and Bodhisattvas produced by the history of this planet in the last thousands of years, we would find some which would be wicked, malicious, they would have many negative traits in some way, because why not? If you are free, why not? Why can't you afford to be a little bit of Mr. Jekyll and Dr. Hyde sometimes, or do some funny things there? But that is not the case. Remember always this statement, this blessing given by St. Mary of Egypt, when after 30 years of life in the desert, and after reaching spiritual perfection and a miraculous life, she gives her famous blessing, which we quote in our texts concerning the blessing technique here in Agama, where Saint Mary of Egypt says, Blessed be God who loves the human beings and wishes for their salvation. God, as Saint Mary of Egypt sees him, loves the human beings, is not indifferent and wishes for their salvation. That means God has a wish. 
Why? Because the wheel of Dharma spins only one way. The wheel of Dharma doesn't spin backward and forward. It spins only forward. And therefore, the divine consciousness who spins the wheel of Dharma wants every soul in this world to get to the end of the wheel, which is enlightenment. Therefore, God indeed, if you put a personal face on God like the Christians do, God wishes for the salvation of people. Because the wheel of Dharma pushes everybody in the direction of salvation. That is why this famous Brahman of the Vedantics and Vedics is not a Brahman which is indifferent. They just make you believe that. But this is a Brahman that wishes something. It is a Brahman that loves. And that is why here between the lines you see the secret. Why are the great beings enlivened by a universal love, by compassion? If it is up there, you are beyond light and darkness, beyond good and evil, beyond plus and minus, beyond desires. Then why would Ramakrishna have, however or Milarepa, have the desire to help other human beings. After all, the human beings don't even deserve it too much, and they treated Milarepa and Ramakrishna quite badly, actually. So why don't they just mind their own business? Or you know, Because Milarepa and Ramakrishna are part of the wheel of Dharma, they resonate with the wheel of Dharma, and therefore they resonate with the will of God. And the will of God points in a direction it's not neutral it's not zero there is a will which has a goal and that goal is expressed marvelously by saint mary of egypt when she says blessed be god who loves people and wishes for their salvation there is an intent there there is an intention there is not a like I created the Maya, I created the universe, now I'm sitting and drumming my fingers and looking at what the idiots do. You know, I'm like just, but I don't care. No, the divine consciousness cares because the divine consciousness has a project. It plays, but even when a child plays, it has a little bit of a project. The project might not be understood in terms of the game, but still there is a project. That project is the child wants to be happy, wants to visualize, wants to imagine things. Still, when the child plays, there is an intent, an intention to that playing. Even if we admit that the divine consciousness plays, it plays in a certain way. It plays with a mind of its own, so to speak. That is why this refutes those that are preaching a sort of neutral spirituality in which everything is equal to zero and it doesn't matter either way because the divine reality Purusha is transcendent and to ascribe to the divine consciousness any intent or intention is absurd. No, it's not absurd. Great mystics have not seen it as absurd and Krishna himself between the lines says it. That those that burn their karma, who eliminated duality and doubts, those who have reached this self-control, this balance of the being, and who are intent on the welfare of all beings. This is a very important addition, which simply says, 
from the world of the senses, when you go to the world of the divine, there is happiness. Because otherwise you would say, I got out of pleasure and pain, and I have gone in a place where there is neither pleasure nor pain. It's true. But there is something. That something is warm, loving, divine. That is ananda. It's bliss. So actually it's not that it's nothing. It's nothing of what you experience usually in the daily life. And it's very hard to fathom by the mind. But it's not that it's nothing as nothing, as zero. It is something. And that is why exactly as beyond the dualities of the senses, you have something else which is happiness, which is bliss, which is ananda. Beyond the positive and negative, the light and darkness of this life, you have Brahman, the Absolute, who is also intent on something, is not quite colorless, because if Brahman would be colorless, then the wheel of Dharma would not spin, because there would be no will of God. But in the moment when Icha Shakti, the divine power of will, says, I want to create, automatically when you said creation, that puts a vector the wheel of Dharma spins, it does not stay. It can spin clockwise, or it could have spun counterclockwise, perhaps, in a strange universe created by a strange creator. But it spins. There is evolution, there is transformation, and that means the universe is going somewhere, humanity is going somewhere, you and I are going somewhere, and that is by divine decree. That is, it is willed by the divine. Thus, do not entertain this belief in a sort of cosmic consciousness which is dead and lifeless. Because the cosmic consciousness is far from dead and lifeless. And the most wonderful manifestation of it is, of course, bliss. Beatitude, the state of Ananda, mentioned so often in today's discourse, is exactly the manifestation of Shakti, the life of God, the mother of the universe, the thing which makes God alive and an active present force, actually the omnipresent, the omnipotent and the omniscient divine presence of this reality. With this we stop for now. Our last strophe was number 25. Next time we'll continue with the last couple of strophes from this chapter and move to the next chapter. As usually, let us remain for a few minutes in silent meditation, allowing some of the deeper meanings of this teaching to sink into the deeper layers of the mind. And after this, we'll stop and part for tonight.